This past weekend, my family and I were in Athens, Georgia, because our son Micah performed with the Georgia All-State Chorus on Saturday. The concert was wonderful, and we enjoyed worshiping with Watkinsville First Baptist Church on Sunday. I'm very thankful for Greg Benfield, who is the Associational Missions Strategist for the Piedmont Okefenokee Baptist Association. That's the association that Central is a member of. Greg filled the pulpit for me here at Central in Waycross so that I could be away. Since I did not preach this last Sunday, the sermon this week is one out of the archives. In 2019, I preached a sermon series on families and began with the sermon from Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19, titled, Marriages That Testify to Christ. I preached this on March the 3rd of 2019, and I hope it will be a blessing to you today. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. There is no doubt that marriage today is under attack. Just think historically with me, not necessarily that far back, but just some of the the high points. In the late 1960s, early 70s, no-fault divorce became a legal option in the United States, and that ushered in a tidal wave of divorce, leading to a generation of children that are labeled the divorce generation. Now, that would be my generation, probably right in the middle of that. Writing about his experience growing up in these days, David Jefferson in a 2008 article in Newsweek wrote these words in, a, in an article titled, The Divorce Generation Grows Up. He, he wrote, it's been more than a quarter century since the great, the Grant High School class of 1982 donned tuxes and danced to the sticks come sail away at the senior prom. And nearly four decades have passed since no-fault divorce laws began spreading across the country. In our parents' generation, marriage was still the most powerful social force. In ours, it was divorce. My 44-year-old classmates and I have watched divorce morph from something shocking, even shameful, into a routine fact of American life. The divorce generation, having grown up in families broken and scarred by divorce, went on to reject the idea of marriage even further. Many of this generation wanting to avoid the brokenness and pain that they witnessed from their parents chose to avoid marriage altogether. The first of this generation chose to cohabitate before marriage. It was this idea that we'll live together first and then marry if things work out. The last of this generation never even considered marriage at all, not even for the benefit of children. Marriage is not even a an important dynamic in the context of of relationships. Commingling with the the diminishing importance uh, given to marriage was the backdrop of the sexual revolution. In the early days of the the revolution, there was a political push to extend the social and economic benefits of marriage to same-sex partnerships. 
But almost as soon as this was accomplished, there was a push then to simply dismantle any legal, societal, or economic support of marriage. And that's where we are presently. And all this and more has had the effect of weakening, if not completely destroying, the family. And dear friends, as the family in our culture has been systematically dismantled and brought under attack, so has every other part of our culture been weakened. This morning, I, I want to think of, uh, in these ways, and, and two are, I think, implicit in the passage, and then a third are explicit teachings from the passage. So the two implicit truths, and that is that marriage is good, and that the marriage covenant is a blessing. Really with these two, I want to instruct you in a biblical worldview of marriage. Then the third, the implicit instruction from the passage, that marriage is an imperfect but good testimony to the gospel of Jesus. Wives in the way you subject yourself to your husbands and husbands in the way you love your wives. Let's begin with marriage is good. I believe that marriage is a worthy and good desire. Marriage is a worthy and good desire. Now, we understand that marriage is not required of believers to be pleasing to God. God can use you in your singleness. God can use you prior to marriage. God can use you as a lifelong calling to singleness. And certainly God can use you after the death of your spouse. Paul, who is the author of Colossians, he is himself single. In fact, in other places in Scripture, he says, I wish all of you were as me, in part that you could use your entire life free from the, 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 the restrictions and the obligations of marriage and family life. I, believe, I wish you were all like me, that you could devote all of your life to Jesus and the, and the call of the gospel. Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. There's no doubt that God used him in a mighty way. So we're not saying that marriage is a unique place that within only God can use you. In fact, we understand and we clearly say God can use you no matter where you are in life. If you are single, if you are married, God can use you if you'll devote yourself to Jesus. But dear friends, marriage is good and worthy and a good desire. The reason I say this is because in the context of Paul speaking in chapter 3 about putting on the new self, it is a natural response to him toward the end of this chapter to move to speaking about family relations, and he begins with marriage. The way wives are to relate to their husbands, the way husbands are to relate to their wives, the way children are to relate to their parents. I think there is a... In, understanding in this teaching that marriage is good and a worthy and good desire. To those whom God calls to marriage, it is a good and worthy calling. Where singleness gives freedom to be used beyond domestic burdens, marriage gives the opportunity to testify to the gospel in the context of domestic obligations. Why, wife, should you subject yourself to, the, to your husband? Why, husband, should you love your wife? It's not just so that you can have happy meals at the end of the day. It's that you may testify to the glory of God in the context of your marriage. At different times, the church has struggled to articulate the value of both singleness and, married, and, and, and marriage. 
If you are my age or older, you likely grew up in a church culture that honored marriage over singleness. When I went to seminary, the pressure was palpable of men that were called to preach were in seminary but had not married. And they understood a single man called to preach was a guy that was hard to find a church. Because in general, just the church culture honored marriage, wanted their pastors to be married. I think presently the church is struggling to make the case for the goodness of marriage. I think we need to recognize that so many of the boys growing up in our community, and I'm not talking about California, I'm not talking about Oregon, I'm not talking about somewhere else, I'm talking about Waycross, Georgia. So many of the young men growing up in our community as our neighbors and our friends and in our homes that we welcome when our children come, that young men growing up in our community do not have an example of a father in the home. There's not a testimony to them that marriage is good and desirable and honoring before the Lord. We need to recognize that the celebrated model that the culture makers of our day are pushing rejects the goodness of marriage. They celebrate the the destruction of marriage and the abandonment of marriage. Now, friends, this point may seem simplistic. And certainly this point is not explicit, but it is implicit in this text that marriage is good, that marriage is a worthy desire, and that through marriage you can live out a worthy and good testimony to God. And friends, we need to make that case. Not only is it worthy and good, it is a purposeful pursuit. If you notice that in the last hundred years, wedding ceremonies have become more elaborate and expensive while the length of marriages have fallen to an embarrassing short length. My grandparents were married in the front Parlor. Y'all know what a parlor is? It's a sitting room you only use when you have company over. My grandparents were married in the front parlor of their pastor's home. I don't think anybody was there but my pastor and maybe a few other, their pastor and maybe a few other people. When they went home after the wedding, the only thing they had to make cabinets in their kitchen were some old fruit crates that they turned sideways, and that was how they set up housekeeping. The only thing their marriage cost them was uh, whatever the marriage license cost and whatever my granddad gave his pastor as an honorarium. They didn't buy new clothes. They just wore their son to go to meeting clothes to get married in. And they were married until death parted them. Today, wedding ceremonies are more production than solemn assembly. And the debt incurred to pay them off sometimes outlast the marriage itself. The point is, is that often more attention is given given to getting married than being married. Do you hear me? Anybody can get married. It takes work to be married. Marriage is not easy. It is not always filled with bliss. Mine is, of course. And it is not without challenges. Marriage requires each spouse to daily engage in the relationship as an act of obedience before the Lord. 
when Paul says wives ought to, to subject themselves, their submission is not a passive action, but a willful act of obedience, not to their husband, but to the Lord they serve. When Paul says to husbands, love your wives, their loving their wives is not a selfish act, but a willful sacrificial act in obedience to God himself. And one question I ask every couple planning to marry that have an opportunity to counsel is, in your personal opinion, is divorce an option if things in marriage become difficult? Now, I know something they don't know, is that their marriage at some point will become difficult. When you get married and the blissful of love is all over you, you don't think any of that's going to ever happen, right? You're going to live on love. The answer to this question testifies to their intensity of the, the pursuit or the lack thereof of marriage. Friends, marriage is not just something we do. Marriage is something we pursue with purpose as an act of obedience before the Lord. Do you hear me? Marriage is not just something you do. It's not something you file away. It's not something that becomes automatic and easy. Marriage is a godly pursuit, a daily godly pursuit of an act of obedience before God that, that wives and husbands would be married to one another with intensity, with, with purpose, with the purpose to glorify God in their marriage and the way they relate to one another. Marriage is good. There's something else here that I think is implicit in the passage, and that is that marriage, that the marriage covenant is a blessing. There's a provision of grace in the context of the covenant of marriage. And that is that the marriage covenant is not breakable. The command to the wives and husbands in the Colossians passage does not include a conditional cause, clause. In other words, it doesn't say, wives, subject yourself to your husband if, or but, or unless. And it doesn't say to husbands, husbands, love your wives if, but, or unless. The assumption of the passage is that wives and husbands are connected in a God-joined covenant. Now, dear friends, I, I'm compelled to say that there are certainly times when divorce is a forced necessity. And I would put in here abuse and abandonment. But these should be the sad exceptions, not the common rule. It's been probably 20 years now. George Barna did a, 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 a survey of divorce within the evangelical church, people who said they attend church regularly. And he found that the divorce rate amongst Christians was no different than the divorce rate amongst the world. That ought to break our hearts. You see, in the context of covenant is grace. The truth is no marriage is perfect. No husband is perfect. No wife is perfect. And every single marriage has failure. Every husband will disappoint his wife and every wife will disappoint her husband. Some disappointments will be short-lived and some disappointments will require long suffering. 
All marriages will suffer the destruction and the hurt of each spouse's sin. When you enter into marriage, you bring your brokenness and your sin, and that sin breeds destruction and hurt. The greater the sin, the greater the destruction and hurt. And in the moments when the hurt of sin is great or the disappointments of your spouse is heavy, the hold of the covenant provides an opportunity for grace. Without the threat of leaving or abandoning is the grace to forgive, is the grace to help, is the grace to wait on the Lord to change and to transform. We're an impatient people. Sometimes we pray on Monday and expect God to have it done by Tuesday afternoon. And there are some husbands and there are some wives in this room that can bear a testimony that they prayed for years waiting on God to transform their husband or waiting for years for God to transform their wife. And many of them have a testimony today that God did that and they celebrate the grace of that and that grace came in the context of a covenant that was unbreakable before the Lord. Not only that, covenantal marriage gives the opportunity for reconciliation. The hold of the covenant provides the time and the space needed for reconciliation. Every now and then, I've had Christian couples say to me, in a very spiritual, I mean, it's always spiritualized. They've prayed about it, they've thought about it, that they're gonna take some time apart. They're gonna separate for a period, figure things out, pray, and try to work on their marriage. And in total honesty, in the early days of my ministry, I didn't really know what the answer to that was. And people said they prayed about it. But the older I get and the longer I pastor, I just have zero patience for that silliness. There is no support in Scripture for that. There is no passage of Scripture you can go to, even a proof text for that. In fact, the very opposite is true. In the context of marriage, in the context of covenant, is the space for reconciliation. And when you separate, when you divide, you welcome all sorts of things in that are not God-honoring, that don't bring to a reconciliation, and in fact, produce destruction. It is easy to agree to the covenant of marriage on your wedding day when there's no trouble. The test of the covenant comes on the worst day of your marriage. These days often come when sin has brought destruction and hurt, when tears fill your eyes and hurt is weighing down your heart. And if you separate, if you abandon, if you leave the, uh, and forfeit, and if you leave the covenant of your marriage in the context of your marriage, you forfeit the opportunity for reconciliation for the moment of pleasure, at least briefly. It's a difficult moment. And so your natural desire is to abandon. Your natural desire is to go somewhere else where there's peace, where there's less difficulty. But if you'll remain... Upholding the covenant of your marriage, you give opportunity for reconciliation, forgiveness, and healing. Now, those are implicit in the passage. I want to now give our attention to in implicit truths here. And that is that the marriage is an imperfect but a good testimony. Three things. Number one, 
your marriage testifies to the submission of the church to Christ. Now, Paul talked with greater detail on this subject in the fifth chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. In this letter, he references these two commands. Likely, as I've already mentioned, it's a familiar teaching, and with these two verses that Paul speaks here, in the third chapter of Colossians, Paul is bringing to the mind to his readers the fuller teaching on this subject. So when he says in verse 18, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord and husbands love your wives, do not be embittered against them. That, that, that quick phrase reminds the church of the fuller teaching of what he has taught on this subject. The elephant in the room this morning is that the word submission is often seen as a negative word in our context. There have been some that in an effort to discredit this teaching have tied this teaching to the claim that Paul was simply reflecting the chauvinistic cultural norms of the day. It is interesting, though, that those who say that reject verse 18 but not verse 19. But, dear friends, the New Testament church had radically redefined the understanding of human, human dignity and value. The ancient world only ascribed worth to people who had power and authority. You didn't even really have personhood as an adult unless you had power and authority. You could be used and abused unless you had power and authority. There were slaves in the first century church, in the first century world. We know that women were seen more as property than anything else. They were seen as civilized cultures and uncivilized cultures. There were cultures that were to be revered and honored. There were whole cultures of people that were seen as legitimately willing to, to write off as worthless. And what does the New Testament church say? Oh, we are made, all of us are made in the image of God. Just a few verses earlier in verse 10 and 11, Paul writes, and have, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all in all. That is a radical statement that says man or woman, slave or freeman, Greek or barbarian, if you're, you're made in the image of God and have value because of that. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor freeman, there is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. When the New Testament church met for worship and when they gathered around the Lord's supper table, there wasn't a section for the rich and a section for the poor. There wasn't a section for the men and a section for the women. There wasn't a section for the slaves and the free or anything else. There was simply a welcoming to the table because all had been saved by the same blood of Jesus. That was radical in the first century. By the way, it's still radical in our day today. That's the context of which the church is changing the understanding of uh, this biblical worldview of humanity, that, that, that there's value in each of you. So this is not a passage about elevating or diminishing one class of people over the other. And so therefore you must take this passage not in the context of the first century chauvinism understanding. You got to take this as what it is, biblical teaching about how we're to be married to one another. And Paul says, wives are to subject themselves to their husbands. Now the 
The word he uses here that is oftentimes translated submission is not about wives being of less value. The word here is about willingly putting yourself under the authority of another. In fact, the word means to submit to the orders or directives of someone. A couple of the places in Scripture it's used in Luke chapter 2, verse 51. It refers to Jesus' subjection to his parents. Luke chapter 10, it describes demons being subject to the disciples. In Romans 8, Paul employs the word to speak of being submissive to the commands of God's law. In Romans 13, it refers to the necessity, uh, necessary submission of every person to the governing authority which is established by God. And in 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians 1, the verb looks to the time when all things in the universe are made subject to Christ and God in eternity. By the way, we experience this word every day in our lives. When you go to work tomorrow morning, you subject yourself to your boss. Do you feel less of a person for that? I hope not. But there's an understanding there's somebody in authority and, and you're not it. And so you subject your, when the boss comes to you and says, I want you to do such and such, you subject yourself to their authority and you do that. When you're driving home this afternoon, you subject yourself to the laws of Waycross, Georgia, and that you can't go, plant, go down Plant Avenue at 80 miles an hour. In just a few months, we're going to pay our taxes, or you ought to be paying your taxes, and you subject yourself to the authority of the United States government. And you, it's not because you want to, but you do it because you subject yourself to the, the law of the land. It's a recognition not of value or worth, but a, but a recognition of a position in authority. Wives, your willful obedience to place yourself under the authority of your husband is a testimony for the church how every believer is to place ourselves under the authority of Christ. Listen to me carefully. If you are a believer here today, you must be. This is an absolute statement. You must subject yourself to the authority of Jesus. And God gave us the context of marriage and the way wives relate to their husbands as a living testimony of what that looks like. Why subject yourself to your husband's? Number two, marriage testifies to the love of God. Paul commands husbands to love their wives. The word used here is a familiar word. It's agape. It's in the present tense, meaning that that this is an expression of willing love, not passion or emotion. It's a love of choice, and it's a love that continues. In other words, it's not a momentary reality. It's something that begins and doesn't end. Today in our culture, the word love is often used to express all kinds of things that have nothing to do with love. Oftentimes the word love is used to express desire, infatuation, or a temporary emotional intensity. The confusion of our word, our world as to what love is is found in the common reason given for breakups of marriage. You've heard it. You may have said it. People will say, well, I fell out of love. Or one spouse will say to another, I don't love you anymore. Husbands, you are to love your wife the way Christ loves us. Sacrificially, permanently, and faithfully. Did you hear me? Love your wives sacrificially, permanently, and faithfully. 
Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Paul goes on to say that husbands are not to be embittered against their wives. One commentator wrote, he said, Paul tells husbands not to call their honeys and then act like vinegar. They must not display harshness of temper or resentment toward their wives or not to be irritant or are frustrated, but rather provide loving leadership in the home. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul gives a helpful instruction that the heart of a husband and, by the way, the heart of a wife should be to please their spouse. 1 Corinthians 7 says, But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. His interests are divided. The woman, is un, the, the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, but she may be holy, that, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Listen to me, husbands. Your faithful obedience to love your wife is a testimony how Christ has loved us and laid down his life for our salvation. You bear that testimony. There's never a question in Scripture that Jesus doesn't love us. We preach from this pulpit, no matter who you are, what you are, what you've done, the love of Christ is greater and better. And that's the testimony we must bear in our marriages. Love your wives as Christ loved the church, sacrificially, permanently, and faithfully. One other thing. Really, we turn to a theme we've already talked about, and that's the permanence of the covenant. In submitting to, our hus- to your husbands and in loving your wives as Christ loved the church, both husband and wife testify to the permanence of God's covenant. There is not a single place in Scripture where there is even a hint or a threat of God being unfaithful to his promise. In fact, there are some terribly uncomfortable passages. I'm thinking of the whole book of Hosea where God demonstrates our unfaithfulness and his everlasting faithfulness. In fact, the whole testimony in Scripture from from Genesis 3 all the way to the amen of Revelation is about our unfaithfulness and God's relentless, eternal pursuit of faithfulness to love us. Even faced with the ugliness of our sinful rebellion, God is faithful Even when we crucify Jesus on the cross, God is faithful. Even as our world grows bold in wicked rebellion, God is faithful to save all who would call upon the name of Jesus. Husbands and wives, you bear testimony to the faithfulness of God in your faithfulness to each other. So I want to end today with a testimony that was lived out in front of me that had a very powerful impact. 
We've already said that family and marriage being the very foundation of family is important, not just to the health of the church, but the very stability and well-being of the culture around us. Dear friends, you and I, because we have the instruction of Scripture and the understanding of the Word of God, we must bear a testimony to the culture around us of the goodness of marriage and the goodness of family. And as you bear that in your own marriage and in your own family, you raise up a generation behind you that has a testimony of that. My memory of my grandparents, who I absolutely adored, is nothing but sweet things. I remember fondly the affection and that my grandparents had for one another. But that's not the whole story about their marriage. The story in our family is, is that during the days when I was too young to remember, my granddad had become mean. Probably the best word for it. He was not physically abusive, but he was just mean. Took every opportunity he could to complain, to gripe, to fuss at my grandmother. My parents say that it was such a difficult place to be in their home because of his grumpiness, his meanness, that um, they didn't want the children there, they didn't want me there, they didn't want my mom there. So they just had to quit visiting. My dad would go up and see about his parents. They just didn't want to spend time in the home. My granddad was just mean. And that lasted for a while. It wasn't like a a week-long meanness and then he got better. I mean, it, nobody could really remember when it started, but he had just grown mean. I do remember the surgery. Granddad went in and, and they were able to uh, clean out the artery in his neck that was closed and was depriving his brain of the blood flow. My parents say that after the surgery, it was like a dramatic transformation of personality who had been mean and grumpy and difficult became who they remembered a very kind, affectionate, sweet man that's who I remember my grandparents were uh, probably 30 more years of marriage after that and all of my days growing up I simply knew them as two people who enjoyed marriage and it was a sweet experience and In fact, probably one of the sweetest moments that I remember about them is in the very last days of my granddad's life, he had fallen out of the bed. And the docs had said, you need to get a hospital bed for him because you just can't can't leave him, you can't trust him in the bed. They had slept in a little double bed their whole life. I don't know how they did that. My grandparents said, no, we'll just get in the middle and hold on to one another. And that's what they did for the last two or three weeks of his life. Isn't that a sweet thing? But when I think back on their story, I'm reminded that the reason why they ended so well is because my grandmother was faithful, obedient, to subject herself to my granddad even when it wasn't easy. She was faithful to do that even when she didn't know if there was going to be an end in sight. If that was happening today, the counsel from their friends and the counsel from well-meaning church people would be, you know, you need to go you need to do something that makes you happy. You can't live in that kind of environment. That's miserable. 
the last 30 years of their marriage was a blessing, not only because she was faithful, mostly because she was faithful, but even in those difficult days when he was unsatisfied with everything, nothing gave him pleasure. He remained faithful to my grandmother. He loved her in the way he could, providing and coming home every night, being a husband. Those are difficult days. Those were ugly days. Those were days that did not have an ending in sight. We're thankful for God's provision there. But the, the joy, the blessing, the goodness of the last days were provided because of the faithfulness of the earth. She loved her husband as unto the Lord. And he loved his wife as unto the Lord. Dear friends, that's the, that's the encouragement I want to give to you today. Your marriage is not perfect. Your marriage is not perfect. Your family is not perfect. But that's not an excuse to abandon the calling of God. Bear a testimony. Wives, bear a testimony to our subjection to the Lordship of Jesus. Husbands, bear a testimony before the, lo before the Lord and for the world in the way you love your wife that testifies to how Christ loved us. And let us, let our families and the foundation of that our marriages be a testimony to the watching world, the transformation that Jesus makes in our lives. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.